Welcome to the Equipping Webinar, where we connect discipleship, theology, and apologetics to everyday life. Welcome to the September 2017 version of Watermark's Equipping Webinar. My name is Nathan. I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics here at Watermark Community Church, and we now have the one and only Kirby Wagner. So Kirby, welcome to the webinar. So happy to be here. You're already doing producer type things. Like before we started going live, she was like briefing us on all this <laughs> stuff that's that's going on in the world today. And so you're you're already adding value like crazy. I love it. I want to ask you an icebreaker question, though, because I have a four-year-old boy and a two-year-old boy, and they are, they're like all boy. I mean, you know okay. them, right? They are always into superheroes. So if you could have one superhero power, which one would you choose and why? It's a great question. I actually have an answer right off the top of my head, and then I have an an- another answer in case you reject my first one. Send it. So with the risk of sounding like I want to be Jesus... <laughs> <laughs> if I could choose a superpower, uh, I would want to be a healer so I could like touch and heal. Like Wolverine who self heals or like heal other people? No, heal other people. You want to heal other people. Like even sadness, like I could heal sadness, mm. which that does start to get into kind of a God complex type thing. <laughs> <laughs> but so, Kirby, what I'm hearing you say is you want to be God. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're just talking, you know, shopping for powers, that's what I'd go for. Awesome. So what's the other one you said you wanted to? Uh, that would be a um, the ability to go five minutes back in time, mm. which means you can try anything once. You could be like, I'm going to go try to talk to her. And then, oh, that didn't work. Go back mm. five minutes. Try again. That is go back five minutes. Cool. Well, Kirby's going to be taking your questions and then she'll insert those into the conversation. But we are blessed today to have from our external focus team, the director of external mobilization, Benson Hines. Benson, what's up, man? Hey, good to be here. This is real fun and not as warm as the room was yesterday when we were setting up. So I know, right? I'm getting good. I wore so, shorts on purpose. And a t-shirt. We're, yeah. we're in t-shirts. This is awesome. Same question for you, Icebreaker. If you could have a superhero power, which one would it be? Well, uh, mine isn't as sacrilegious as Kirby's was. <laughs> um, really, since I was probably in junior high and uh, not sure if this is appropriate for your audience, but I always felt like it would be great if I had the ability to just incapacitate someone, specifically <laughs> like make them throw up uh, was always um, what was on my mind. And so that's what came to mind. I think you could maybe clean it up with like, hey, give someone a bloody nose. But I <laughs> I just figure like, man, if you're in an argument, like you win that argument. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're just done. Like how bad your reasoning is. If they begin to throw up, you have won that argument. Benson, that sounds like you just decided you were going to be a super villain. That that, that is kind of true. So, So I would have to follow behind you. Yeah, with my and superpower, some people, healing that, people, I still won the argument. I think then I win the argument. <laughs> if I come in, I'm long gone celebrating my victory <laughs> and haven't tried to place myself in the place of the Son of God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to turn into a psychoanalytical counseling session with Benson. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love it. Cool, man. Well, so tell us about yourself. How long have you been at Watermark? Yeah, I've been at Watermark going here since 2008, on staff here since January of 2013. So almost five years. 
I grew up in the Dallas area, out sort of in the country in a town or near a town called Kaufman. Uh, went to Texas A&M University and then seminary after that. Um, my background, um, most of my work in life has been college ministry related stuff, ministry to college students, but um, love being on the external focus team and love, I'm kind of an operations-y kind of thinker. And so that's been real fun. My um, got married uh, four and a half years ago. And uh, we, my wife, Catherine, and I live out now in Farmer's Branch, which is uh, just next to Dallas. And we have two kids under two, uh, Sophie and Wilson. Love it. Uh, which is part of the reason why my answers today may be a little crazy, because <laughs> sleep is at a premium, and we are not receiving that premium right now. Yeah, I hear you, man. Well, as, as, a, as a dad of young kids as well, I'm empathizing with you, brother. Well, hey, we're also excited to have uh, one of our brand new Watermark Fellows. So in the past, this program has been known as Watermark's Residency Program. And now we've changed the name to the Watermark Fellowship. And one of the fellows is with us today. Her name is Robin Brewster. Welcome to the webinar, Robert. Hey, Robin. guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself. But before you do that, tell us about your superhero power. Yeah, I think my power is kind of boring. I would just fly. Um, maybe mm. that has to do with my name well, being Robin. Is, no, that's I don't not know. boring. Um, not boring. Yeah, not boring. It, it's a little more righteous and a little kinder than the other answers. Yeah, so totally. We'll yeah, so I would fly. Um, but yeah, I'm actually new to Dallas. My husband and I moved here in July for the fellowship program. Um, so we're new to Watermark, but it's been awesome. A little bit about us. We got married in October, so we're approaching wow. our one-year anniversary, which Bros. is really exciting. Um, yeah, the fellowship's been awesome. So I'm serving with the external focus team, and I love that. I've done a lot of international missions, and I love getting to help people mobilized to serve. That's a passion of mine. Um, but I've also have a background in counseling. I have my license in counseling. And then I'm here today because I've studied emergency management and I have a master's degree in that. And I've gotten to do some great disaster work all around the world. Okay, cool. So talk to us, Benson, just about the the external focus team. Why, why in the world does, was, does a church have an external focus team what do you guys do? Sure. You know, all uh, we are named in such a way that we pretty much always have to explain what we do. But external focus <laughs> in other churches might be called outreach or missions, local and global missions, uh, whatever it might be called in other places. And that's what we do. We want Watermark as a church wants to have an external focus. And so our role on our team is uh, simply to help that happen, whatever that means. Uh, you know, we would say it boils down to kind of two buckets. One is, we want to mobilize the body. Mm. And two is we want to have a big impact on our city and on our world. And, you know, you can't, you wouldn't want to do either of those without the other. You, you know, there's things we could do to have a big impact, but our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Mm -hmm. It says, on the other hand, we don't want to just mobilize if what we're mobilizing people to is uh, not going to have a big impact. So we care about both those things. And then my role specifically on that team is uh, as director of external mobilization is pretty much anything that deals with communications or mobilization, getting people out of the pews or in Watermark's case, the multicolored chairs to go serve <laughs> in the community uh, is kind of what I get to spend my time thinking about. And we kind of have here an, a kind of an international flair, and then we also have more of like a local outreach. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, we have worked hard really not to separate those. You know, I think we recognize that, hey, 
just like any church can have imbalances, we can have imbalances, but we don't want to have the imbalance that says that what happens internationally, well, those are the all-star believers and, um, and that it's all about going and serving elsewhere. We'd also say that, Hey, what is just around us matters a lot. And we want to be great neighbors and, and bring a blessing to this community. Yeah. I love it. So things happen, right? I mean, there's uh, natural evil is sometimes what this is called. Disasters happen. Uh, We live in a world that has been subjected by sin, by our rebellion against God. And the result of that is all sorts of chaos. Chaos, um, obviously, the way that we interact with God is broken. The way we interact with ourselves is broken like our individual selves, the way we interact with one another is broken, but also the way that we interact with nature and the way that nature interacts with us is also broken. And so we have a lot of opportunities as believers, obviously living in a broken world to uh, be ministers of the gospel. And one of the unique ways that has been highlighted over the last couple of weeks is um, how we respond when disaster strikes. A hurricane hits uh, South Texas, and instead of kind of moving on, the elements were right for it to go back out into the Gulf and gain more stream and hit it again, and then again, and again. It's like, dadgum, man, what in the world's going on? And all this water, and now Houston's underwater. And then right on the tail of that, Irma comes up through the Caribbean and hits Florida. And now there's another one swirling out. Um, Hurricane Jose, Jose yeah, is stirring out. And who knows what's going to happen with that. And so I think a lot of times Christians can be sitting there. I know I'm, I'm one of them. You see these things, all these images swirling on the news, and you're just like, man, I want to do something. But what do I do? What does faithfulness to Jesus look like right now as I'm sitting here watching this on the news going uh, swirling around and people are uh, obviously in need and I want to help them? And so before we get into the practicalities of that, I think it's really important for us to approach this from a theological standpoint to address what is Jesus thinking and what is Jesus speaking into and what is Jesus doing when he encounters the brokenness of the world. And I think from that perspective, I think the Gospels portray this man who hyper-focuses down in on and is consistently moving toward people who are in need. So, um, it's it's like if Jesus walks into a room and there's people who, even though they have need, they don't think they are in need. But then you have the person over there who is obviously in need as well, but recognizes their need. And Jesus is immediately going to the person that we would all say, oh, yeah, that person's in need. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I already mentioned it, is we're all broken, right? All of us are in need. But Jesus is uniquely close to people um, who have a very keen sense of their need in that moment. And I think we see that, frankly, through the incarnation itself. God himself takes on flesh and becomes someone who experiences need. He's poor. He's, frankly, a homeless guy, a homeless man. And he's identifying with these people who are in need. And so there, there's a very, in, just in Jesus's incarnation and his incarnational style of ministry, he's moving toward people who are poor. He knows what it means to be displaced. He's, he's experiencing these things. And um, it, it flows right into Deuteronomy chapter 10, where it describes a God who is intensely interested in these people. And so much so that the righteousness of God is never divorced from meeting people's real needs. 
And we see that all the way throughout the Old Testament. But then again, in the New Testament, where Jesus in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, actually measures someone's right standing with God directly with their willingness to and their action in meeting someone's physical need. So I was poor. I was distressed. I was displaced. I needed some food. I needed these things. And you came and fed me. You came and clothed me. Jesus is, he's equating those things. And then again, in First John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, where John is writing and he says, hey, if you see your brother or sister in need and you have the means to meet their need and you don't do that, how does the love of God dwell in you? And so there's a this stream all the way through scripture, I think from a theological standpoint, that this is, I think the feeling that we get when disaster strikes or when a need is there that we can meet, I think all of us have that urge inside of us to meet that need. And I think that that's the fingerprint of God right on us to, hey, go engage that. But how we do that is is uh, is really important. So, anything you guys would add to that as I start to as I were just kind of thinking theologically through that. Well, connected to what you just said, even where the biblical writers are saying things like, "How could the love of God dwell in you if if that's your response or your lack of response?" I'd, all through Scripture, just like you said, there's sort of this assumed care. Like, mm-hmm. God doesn't spend a lot of times trying to convince people that they should care for orphans or widows or the poor or whatever, that that thing that's inside really any human that tends to kind of call out to those people or at least see serving in those ways as good, seems to be God goes right along with that. And he's like, yes, I made you that way. Mm-hmm. And then he does things that are purposeful, like enact laws, like you're saying, right. that help that happen well, which I think is instructive even as we keep talking, that there is a helping well, and then there's just a helping. The other thing as a team we talk a lot about is just that original notion of being made in God's image. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, scholars don't always completely know what in the world that is supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. But what I think is useful is one, it means something. Like yep. it clearly means something about the dignity with which we've been made. But then also it clearly applies to everybody. Like God talks about making people in his image. And so it, You know, even to a point of saying, hey, we don't ever, like when we go help the poor or help someone who's faced disaster, we're not actually restoring anyone's dignity. Mm -hmm. We're not giving anyone dignity. We throw those words around, but... But that's not really the way we should talk about it. All we're really doing is reflecting their dignity or possibly uncovering Mm -hmm. dignity that has been marred or has Mm -hmm. been covered up or been disguised by the brokenness, again, that we all all face. And and we respond because of the dignity that's inherent to them as image bearers of God. It's interesting, though, when things like this happen, people typically respond in in a handful of different ways. And I want to talk about three of them really quickly move through these as things that are typical motivators for people to act when disaster hits. And all three of these are uh, massively insufficient as motivators to carry on a long-term sustained work that I think the Holy Spirit is calling us to. The first one is a lot of times people respond just out of emotion, right? We see something happen and we're like, uh, I've got to go do something. Which, uh, look, emotion is a powerful motivator, right? In fact, I think I would argue, I mean, I, you know, social media stirs up 
emotions all the time and you get you get movement but it's it's not focused and it's it's purposeless in in a lot of ways so emo you, you can see something and be like man i want to do something well the what ends up happening is people will move and act out of their emotion but then they very quickly experience what some people call compassion fatigue where they get into it and they're like okay i used to feel really strongly about this but i don't anymore therefore i'm going home you know like i'm i'm not doing it. and they burn out they you or you become desensitized to it you get into it i experience this a lot in the military you you see a lot of different things in a combat zone and after a while you're like well that's just normal like whatever i mean it, where where somebody who's seeing it for the first time is shocked by it now you're like eh, you know you kind of shrug shrug your shoulders at it so that's one motivator that i think moves a lot of people is emotion the other one is i think a lot of people have a savior complex there's a there's kind of this hey i've got the resources and i got the power and you know hey all you people down there i'm going to come help you and so we parachute into these situations save everybody and then we really thrive for the the stroke on our ego that's like okay yeah look at all those people that i just helped and obviously for reasons that hopefully i don't have to unpack like that is not a good motivating motivator that should move us and then lastly kind of similar to that but way different maybe on the opposite spectrum is a lot of people will act out of their insecurity they see a situation and they're like okay I want to be the type of person who would respond well to that. And I don't know that I am. And I want people to maybe even perceive me to be that type of person, even though I know I'm not. And so I'm going to, out of my insecurity, act on those ways. It's almost like, so like if your savior complex is for you to get your ego stroked, the insecurity is for you to try to fill an ego need that's, that's, that's uh, deficient in your life. And I think those are three pretty common motivators that move people to action. But again, I think what we're going after today, and I'm, we'll hit some practicalities in a minute, but what we're going after today is we want to push people into not, not a response to a need primarily. We want to push people into intimacy with Jesus. We want to push people into the type of life that they're experiencing through the spirit of Jesus in them where their ego, the ego question in their life is already answered by their identity in Christ. They're, um, they don't need their ego stroke. They're not insecure and in acting out of that. Um, the, the emotion is regulated by a relationship with Christ that is the source of their motivation and is also the sustaining power of their response to a disaster strike. And so again, I, I think the reason I'm spending some time on this right now is we're going to be talking through a lot of practicalities and thinking through this well. But if we don't examine those things on the front end, then they're so foundational, then we can actually be doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And it becomes detrimental to our growth through this process. So wanted to touch on that first, but Vincent, I'm going to push it over to you again, man, and just ask you. So when stuff like Harvey hit, I mean, that that's what Houston's, what, four hours from, yeah. from Dallas, yeah. um, just south of us. When that happens, how do we as a church, how do you as an external focus team, how do y'all think about that? And then how do, what does that response look like? Sure. I think our first step would always be that we want to, we want to learn and that doesn't have to take days, but um, we want to be. Uh, like you said, not let emotion guide us because we're mm -hmm. still made up of people and it would be easy to say, 
to just immediately our wheels start spinning on what could we do? And we first need to learn what has happened. Like, mm-hmm. what is the need? What what do we know now? What might we know soon? So that's going to be part of it. And then we're going to immediately think, like I said before, about how are we going to equip our people? Because, yes, we may need to do some organizing. We may need to get you know, do something corporately as a church, but we, we've got a lot of people out there and especially if it's something close by mm-hmm. or something, you know, that we, you know, connected to somebody we have a relationship with, our people are going to, are going to care and are going to want to jump in and want to help. Again, it goes back to, yes, we as believers are called to do ministry ourselves, but as church leaders, we're called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And and if you even think about the possibilities of impact, it's far more important that we be willing to equip lots of people to impact than if we were to just say, well, let's just do something real quick. Right, right. Um, and so that that's definitely part of it. We will immediately look to trusted organizations. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for being prepared well before disaster hits. Yeah, yeah. And for us, that means knowing, hey, do we have a handful of go-tos that we would really look at? One of those are, would be churches in the affected region. Do we have a relationship with a church? Do we even just by you know knowing of a church, do we feel like we could trust that their response or their wisdom on it would be something we should listen to? And obviously that'd be true with a lot of churches. And so we can do that. But then two, you know, just as examples have been standard bearers for us. Um, one would be Samaritan's Purse, the mm-hmm. worldwide organization that gets involved just about anywhere that's something of magnitude. Yeah, they have a happens. long arm. Yeah, they, they for sure. Reach. Many, yeah. many arms, yeah, you might yeah, say. Yeah. And so that's big for us. And then um, the other one, and it's a little more local, but not as local as the name would imply, is Texas Baptist Men. And mm-hmm. they have a history. They are neither confined to Texas nor just men. Um, so I think they actually <laughs> Maybe they ought are, to think about renaming their I think they're Are work- they all Baptists, though? That is the question. <laughs> they are, well, they probably, probably, probably not. the employees <laughs> might be, but um, they are for a long time have been helping as an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention all over the United States and the world as needed. And I do actually think their rebranding is just TBM down the road, kind of like when KFC uh, became KFC yeah, because yeah, yeah. suddenly no one wanted to eat anything fried, uh, <laughs> which is always a mistake. Uh, well, they do want to eat fried things. They just don't want to say that they're eating that's, fried things. Yeah, that so is a great KFC, point. KFC, yes. Yeah. Um, I say, uh, let your fried flag fly. Um, and. Anyway, uh, so, you know, and then with that, um, we're going to follow our people. There's a part of this that, and Watermark's wired differently than some churches in this way, in that we always say our resources follow our people. So if we're coming up with a local humanitarian organization just in general, uh, we're going to look to what Watermark people are already doing, and then we're going to consider jumping in. We don't start that as a staff. In the same way, when disaster hits, like, we don't want to be uncaring, but at the same time, if God is speaking through his body, our church, um, and they're concerned about Houston because of proximity, because we're seeing it on the news, because we have relation friendships and family members down there. Totally. Then we're gonna we're gonna care about that too, and that might cause us to jump in in a different way than we might right, otherwise. Right. So there, there's an interesting experience when chaos hits, and sometimes in the military we call it the fog of war. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a very real thing, man. When when something happens. And like in my context where, where I was, there was about 60 to 120 seconds where nobody knew what in the world was going on. 
and things are very kinetic. So you're, it's chaotic, but, but the whole time. And I think the the seasoned guys are the ones who learn how to, in that moment to watch and see what's happening and to not make any major decision in that first, in those first moments. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. And, and I think that something similar is going on uh, again, we have to, even though we all experience that initial, okay, let's go, that there is prudence in saying, hang on, let's wait, let's hit the pause button. Like I say in my house all the time, don't freak out. And let's, let's kind of have a measured response to this. That's what I'm hearing you say in response to this as well. Is that fair? Yeah, without a doubt. And, and part of it, because that sometimes, that in practicality sounds cruel or it sounds like we're only using our heads and not using our hearts. Part of the reason why that's a real valid response is that we know that there are organizations who excel in impacting during the fog of war, the the fog of disaster. And so it's because we know that there are places like Samaritan's Purse and Texas Baptist Men and many other great Mm -hmm. organizations that we can say, hey, let's let the experts be experts here. Mm -hmm. It's funny how we act like experts in that moment. And we just have to realize we're not. Yep. Yep. Always a student. And I think too, there's, yeah, it's a valid point in saying like, Hey, we're look, if there's, if somebody's bleeding out on the ground, it's not that you sit there and go, Hmm, I wonder how I should treat them. You know, if the person is in front of you, then act immediately. And so there, there's kind of this, this multi-tiered response where someone's, you know, someone has an immediate need. Someone's drowning in Houston. Okay. Well, you should get a boat and go get them versus a more like, well, I'm in Dallas. What can I do? You know? And it's like, well, then, then that that's going to look different. That's going to be a different response. Yeah. Um, well, and even the man lying on the ground is a good example because even then we know that there are people who, you know, there are rules like don't move that person yeah, if right. they're experiencing X yeah. and, and yet, and, you know, it's it's helping, but it's helping with what you actually know to do. And uh, and then, immediate, you know, in that case, calling 911 or yelling, yeah, is yeah. there a doctor or, or whatever, knowing that even in those moments, we do need the expertise. But yes, of course, you do whatever you can do, need to do, and you pray the whole time. Yeah, getting to getting the person to the help that they need. Yeah, that's right. a good yeah. way to put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. So walk us through, what does it look like kind of moving through the timeline of disaster help from the time that Harvey hits to five years down the road? Yeah. You know, walk us through that process. Well, I think the first thing is that it's really helpful and it's been really helpful for me to realize that there is a timeline and that it does think five years down the road that, you know, most of the time what we're hearing on the news is not at all related to that, Mm -hmm. to that sense that there's a longevity to this process. To kind of set that up, one great way of thinking about it that a guy named Robert Lupton or Bob Lupton has written about is simply that he says, a crisis requires emergency intervention. A chronic problem, an ongoing problem requires development. And we'll talk about that in a second. And he said, address a crisis need with crisis intervention and lives are saved but address a chronic need with crisis intervention and people are harmed. And so that really kind of sets up the idea that like there are different types of needs and that there, there may be a different time, you know, there may be a different longevity or a different moment when different needs are met. And so, yeah, the timeline of disaster help, I mean, it's going to begin with rescue. Like when we're really talking about disaster or a, a tragedy, uh, like what happened um, this morning in London, 
you know, we're talking about there are needs in the moment. There is the guy laying right. in front of you who simply needs you to wrap a sweater around yep. the wound or, yep. or whatever that might be. In Houston, it was. I mean, for some people down there, it was like, hey, I can do something about yeah, this. Flat person. bottom boats. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But obviously that period, uh, it's hard to imagine a situation where that period would last very long. Right, I mean, right. even in Houston, it lasted longer yeah. in some cases than people assumed. But even then it was quick mm-hmm. and um, or relatively quick. Um, so the, it moves pretty quickly into what would we would call relief. Mm-hmm. Relief is going to be like it says, immediate relief of some sort of suffering. So, you know, people don't have food. They're not actually about to die, mm-hmm. but they don't have food or they don't have shelter. Yep. Um, and, and that would be the relief stage. Um, they're, they're not bleeding out anymore, but now they need basic needs. Food, yeah, they shelter, need stitches. Clothing. I mean, yeah, to yeah. use that example, yeah. or yeah, they need basic needs. And so, um, even there, you realize like the needs are immediately different. Like as soon as that changes over, even for the individuals experiencing the, the tragedy or disaster, they're going to need different stuff. And we'll talk about what that stuff is. But to finish through the timeline, this, the next step would be more recovery. Recovery is getting back to where you were. Mm-hmm. Again, just like the word means. It's getting back to where were we right before the disaster happened. And so if you're recovering a family, that is might mean like you're helping rehab their house and you're taking the mud out and the damaged stuff out and you're eventually maybe helping put stuff back in and getting that house back to where it was. But the house provides a good example too as we think about the last step of the timeline and that's development. If you're down in Houston and you're helping people who've been impacted by a flood and you've, you know, mudded out their house, then what are you going to replace those things with? Right. Like, are you going to use better sheetrock? Well, maybe. Like, mm-hmm. you're going to think about, like, hey, how can I set this family up? It, are there ways I can set them up where their house is more, you know, flood resistant or flood proof? Or am I going to help them even think about flood insurance? Or, I mean, there's a million ways to think about this development aim, and I don't mean to go too specific, but development says, can we help people be on better footing mm-hmm. than they were before? The old thing, you know, that my youth pastor used to say, you know, leave the place better than you found it. That's the idea with development. Yep. It's identifying that hey, maybe even related to this tragedy or this crisis, there were some things that should have been better before. Mm -hmm. Well, let's make those things better now. Or it may just be that in the middle of all that disaster help, you recognize some systemic needs, some chronic needs, some things where you're going to help that fam down to that one person or that family all the way up to that city or that state mm-hmm. um, or that country get on better footing than it was before. So just mm-hmm. to recap those, it's rescue, then relief, then recovery, then development. Yeah, I love it. Hey, Robin, so you've been a part of or you've worked with people in disaster zones. Mm-hmm. Share some stories just about how those things play, actually play themselves out practically And how do you know that you're moving kind of from one to the next? Sure. So I think something I would add to this timeline is there's also a psychosocial component of this. And what we mean by that is the mental health experiences Mm -hmm. of the people on the ground who have been through the disaster. So what we see is right after a disaster, there's usually a time of um, people are pumped. They're ready to help. Everybody's all in. There's a sense of hope. And then usually a few weeks to a few months after the disaster, 
people enter into what we call disillusionment, Mm -hmm. which is basically this time of grief and realizing this loss is settling in. And it's usually at that point that the cameras have left, the relief teams have left, and now they're just left to rebuild. Yeah. So a lot of the work that I've done has been in sort of this disillusionment phase or in the recovery phase, as Benson talked about. Um, So for example, I went to Japan in 2013, and we were working with people still displaced from the tsunami that happened there in 2011. Mm -hmm. So we're talking two years down the road, very vulnerable women who most of them lost their spouses in the tsunami. Mm -hmm. um, And they're still living in mobile housing. Mm -hmm. And you may have a family of five or six people crammed into a tiny space. And these people still have needs. And so we got to go and not only give them physical needs, meet physical needs, but share the love of Jesus with them and and explain why can you have hope. Um, Another guy that I think about, um, I went and served in Tuscaloosa after the tornadoes there a few years ago. And a little kid named Joshua, he and I got to talk. And he started telling me about the terrible things he had seen. He had seen a few bodies that had been pretty mangled after the tornado. And we're talking, this is three or four months later, and this is still vividly on this kid's mind. So I think we have to remember the work in recovery is powerful because people feel forgotten Mm -hmm. usually at those points in time. So probably the greatest stories and things I take away from disaster work has been in the recovery phase. Yeah. And and those mental and emotional scars are are things that a lot of times don't get talked about unless you're going to a counselor's office. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but are constantly there (laughs) and, and can take a long time to recover from. Absolutely. Um, Well, and you were talking, Nathan, about how we should think about disaster relief as Christians. You know, if you think about what Jesus did, there was always a spiritual component to the Mm -hmm. healings that he did. It was never just physically um, meeting needs. It was always spiritual. And I think the same is true with disaster relief in that we always have to point people to a greater hope because that is our greatest need in that moment is to know I have nothing and where do I turn and who do I turn to? Well, Jesus's ministry, I mean, all of it, he never separated the the physical need from the, from the spiritual one, as you said. So he says, right, he's preaching to the crowd in John six and he's like, Hey guys, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Right. And which is the, there, he's talking about a spiritual reality, not less meaningful than the material world, actually more meaningful, but sometimes it's easy for us to divorce those things. And he doesn't just say I'm the bread of life. What does he do? He feeds a bunch of people, <laughs> right? I mean, in John 11, when he's, uh, when he is talking to Martha and he's like, Hey, I am the resurrection and the life. And also what? Hey, Lazarus, get up from the dead, right? He's raising the dead. And so there's, there's that, uh, and, and a lot of times I think we, we immediately are thinking about the meet the material need, meet the material need, which is absolutely appropriate. I think Jesus is going, you know, good for you guys, but we can't just stop there and not connect the help that is given to the ultimate need that all of us have. And that is our alienation and the disaster that is our lives apart from God. Right. And so um, connecting those is, is a really, and it, and it makes our evangelism efforts valid when we're engaging people with the love of God in a material way, but then completing that kind of equation, if you want to call it that, to the, ultimately to the love of God. So what are some of the, as, as we kind of move through these slides, what are some, what are some common ways that you guys see people in your experience go, Hey, I want to do this. And they, they just kind of shoot from the hip and then hope it helps, but really they're hurting people. Sure. Uh, yeah, we, um, kind of collect a Rolodex of those, uh, (laughs) ways that people do that. 
Yeah. Uh, what the bummer thing is we're all wired in ways. I mean, kind of like you talked about before with the three kind of insufficient motivations, uh, we're wired in ways that can help without, um, without really helping. I don't know. I first started probably thinking about this. I got the chance to be on the Virginia tech campus about six months after they experienced their shooting in early 2007 and got to speak with Christian college ministers there and, just hear how that had gone like here because there was an outpouring of support and you know that's that's inside the united states so it was easy and you know kind of a fraternity among colleges and and all that sort of thing and so people had sent a lot of help or attempted to help in a lot of ways and that was the first time that i i remember ever really thinking that there is a kind of help that doesn't help and that actually hurts and that was way before i was on staff here and got to dive into that quite a bit more you know, some of the ways that that comes up is, and you know, this is where that timeline of help really aids us in understanding this stuff, is that we get in the way. That's a number one, especially in those kind of relief, in that relief stage, uh, it is easy to get in the way and even kind of steal resources and attention. So you mentioned the boats thing with Houston. You know, it was easy for a lot of people up here in Dallas and I'm sure in other places in the state to say, I want to go help. I want to take my boat down or I want to just drive down there and see what can be done. And that is a very understandable response. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it is in some ways loving in word and tongue instead of deed and in truth, like John talks about. Because you get down there and you take the attention away from what really needs to happen, that you you step in the way of experts who are really doing their thing. Or, you know, in the worst scenarios, people go down there and then need saving themselves or whatever. You hear right, about that right. sometimes. So that's one and kind of connects to the idea that we can misuse our own resources, too. And that that includes even the power of attention. So say you jump online and you just want to do something. And so you give to a crowdsourcing, to a GoFundMe yeah, or something absolutely. where you haven't vetted it. You, you have, have no, no idea, idea if that's what's yeah. needed. Yep. But your money could have gone elsewhere mm -hmm. that in a way that could have helped, and including the power of attention. So you go on Facebook and you point other people to that crowdsourcing or you point other people to, to X, Y, or Z instead of saying, hey, I've really researched and I'm going to put all my money and attention into this trusted organization or this trusted effort. So, so that's one thing. With the actual help of people, we can damage them, mm -hmm. um, not just damage the efforts to help them. We can take away ownership, for instance. You know, even back, we talked about the Old Testament laws. Like, God set up the gleaning laws. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, it's interesting because he commanded property owners to leave some ungleaned, yeah, uncollected areas. Yep. But that's different than saying, hey, I'm going to command every property owner to collect that stuff for the poor. Yeah, right. And there was sort of this setup system of like, hey, for some who are able, it's really better for them to do the work, yep. but that you're making it easier for them to do the work. Well, we can do that in the middle of disaster mm -hmm. or tragedy mm -hmm. too. That if we say, hey, you get away from your house, don't have anything to do with this, we're going to you know, send in Chip and Joanna Gaines and make <laughs> your house what we want it to be. Um, that's not the win. The win is involving them in the process right. as much as they can be. And if they can't be, that's one thing. 
with that, you can create dependency. You can subtly or unsubtly demean people. Um, you know, hey, here are, I mean, in some cases, it's here are the white people yeah. come to help these areas. Yeah. Or it's, hey, here are the Christians come to bring Jesus to Houston. Yeah, totally. Um, not realizing that he actually is there already. Um, <laughs> Zing. And so, uh, you know, and so there's all those sorts of things, yeah. um, even down to, the, what's funny, and I think a good heart check is if you're in that emotional zealous place, which is great as long as you pair it with wisdom and you're wanting to help, are you okay if someone says to you, well, yeah, you can totally get involved by giving money to this trusted organization. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that do to your heart? Like, that's yeah. a good heart check. Or if they were to say, yeah, we'd love for you to come down so you can answer phones to free up this pastor to go do pastoral care right, with people. Right. Like, if you're good with that, then that's a good thing about mm -hmm. your heart. Yeah. If you're like, uh, I'm only really interested if I'm driving a boat or possibly manning the rope that saves at least two dozen people, yeah. like then maybe you're not really interested in helping in the way you should. Yeah. Something I would add to is sending unneeded resources. So I heard in the aftermath yeah. of Haiti, they actually couldn't get resources on the ground because tarmacs were filled with all of these things they didn't need. Um, and I've seen that in a lot of the places I've served is just clothes that get dumped on the side of the road because mm. there's no way to need them. So what we don't want to do is create a logistical nightmare for right. the experts mm -hmm. on the ground. We just need to be aware of what they need and send only those resources. Yeah. yeah remember that everything you send requires some human to do something with it. Right. And we caught a little bit of that even this round with the Harvey stuff on the external focus team is people being surprised when we would push back against donations or against certain donations. There was a day up here or a weekend up here at church that we um, collected certain things, but those were the things that Texas Baptist men had said were most needed. Mm -hmm. And people occasionally were a little indignant that we didn't want your clothes. Yeah, that but, I, but I've got this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And for this particular situation, that's what was needed yeah, most. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great example, Robin. Yeah, I was just going to say, it goes back to what you were saying, Nathan, about the emotive response, because at the end of the day, if it's a selfish response, you know, your actions or your giving or your desire to do something, so you feel a certain way, then mm -hmm. it becomes selfish versus selfless. And if the goal, I mean, in all of it is intimacy with Christ and, you know, serving brothers and sisters, then you have to make sure that it's not coming from a place of selfishness. Yeah. The ego stroke that you get when you're like, hey, you know, because I guarantee you, a, you know, I think another heart check is like, hey, when you do something like that, do you feel your inner life pushing you to broadcast that out to mm -hmm. the world? You mm -hmm. know, man, I really, I, I gave like three dozen diapers, you know, it was amazing. I mean, yeah. those kinds of things where it's like, uh, why are you telling me that right yeah. now? And, uh, and so, yeah, the, I've seen tons of times before as well, where people are like, oh, you know, this is happening and someone 400 miles away is trying to tell me on the ground what I need. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you're like, dude, I'm trying to tell you we need diapers. You know, we need flat bottom boats. Right. We need, and people are like, but I want to give you this. Well, that's not helpful. Yeah, Which we love the heart behind that too. We never want to neglect people's generosity and their yep. hearts in that. What we do want though is to steward that well. It's good. It's always important. Yeah. So a question from a listener is, how do you decide when to give and who to give to? Yeah. And if there's always a need, I mean, recently there's been Irma and Hurricanes and Jose, 
But technically, around the world, there's always something to give yeah, to. How do you the decide time, when? Every day, yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the two questions there really, uh, you know, how do you how do you decide? But they're definitely connected. I mean, it's a big answer as far as what would it be to be a trusted organization. But that's a big part of it is giving to those that you have a reason to trust, and that really goes into. Um, what we're going to talk about next, and we'll hit it a little bit harder here in a second, but but saying, hey, relationship matters. So if I know you personally, hopefully I know you well enough to know what will help you and not hurt you. And if I don't know you, but you know, you know, a ministry partner that I already trust, but you know a church that I already trust, okay, I can I can bank on that, or I should be able to. We're not called to, you know, audit like the IRS every potential opportunity, but we are called to be wise stewards. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot that could go into that. And, um, you know, glad to share about that on email or something, but that, you know, hits the high points. Yeah. I think real quickly, I would tell this listener too, if they're connected to a church, like if they're connected to Watermark, look to your leadership, because I know we spent a lot of time vetting the people that mm-hmm. we suggested. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just look to the leadership that you have. That's always a great way to do it. Um, Cause we try to do that some of that work for them too. And also the cities. So like city of Dallas had some recommendations that were pretty good. I'm sure cities down South had that too. So checking on those websites can be another great way to find out. Yeah. As much as a lot of times the church is kind of like, well, you know, we're the church, we got it. You know, like the city, they're kind of a cluster. They don't know, you know, but more often than not, the local municipal leaders actually know. Yeah. They're actually on the ground with the people. And so that is, I would just reiterate that is a, a lot of times can be a really a trusted source. Yeah. And then when you, when you bring up, you know, how in the world do you know where to help? Uh, that's also a hard question. Like in the end, I can't answer that for someone, but you can sure say, Hey, the principles are, the ideas are a few, you know, a few things. One, the Bible's clear about uh, prioritizing family. It's also, interestingly, it talks about like doing good to all men and especially those of the household of faith. And it's, I, I don't think there that God is saying, Hey, you want to make sure you're helping Christians only, but there is this element there of like relationship mm-hmm. that we are in relationship with other brothers and sisters. And so we help everyone, but we also, you know, we might be connected to people in our own church or in our own friend groups or whatever that need a special sort of help or that need our assistance. And so, you know, some people would call it, you know, who's the person in your ditch Right. back to that story of the good Samaritan. You know, if something's right in front of you, like there's a good chance that God is calling you're the one to do that. Yep, yeah. Yep. But God can also call you across the world too. And so whether to go or just to, to help in other ways, some of that is starting with the recognition that he's, he's not going to call you to all of it. And I think when you start there, when you accept that fact, then you can say, okay, so how might I narrow it down? Mm-hmm. Like, is it, you know, thinking about like, who, who has God wired me to be? So I have certain gifts right now, Financial giving in any sort of bulk way would not tend to be something that I could offer, but I could maybe offer something else. And so if a crisis pops up that needs that something, that might be God poking me to to get over there and help. And so that's not a full answer, but the, but the real answer is a walk with Jesus. The, yeah. the real answer is yeah. relationship with him and then first and, looking to relationships around you. Yeah. And his, I was going to, yeah, just, and his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's where I know you said prioritizing the family, which I think is such a crucial point because a lot of times what people miss out on that is, is the fact that the healthier the family is, the further 
the reach that local body, that local community will have. And so it's kind of the, the mentality of, hey, I'm going to reach the most people by prioritizing and focusing first on yeah. the family. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, and, it's collective. And it, what I meant originally was that the Bible really seems to prioritize helping one's own family, yeah. like their yep. brothers and sisters and mom and dad and stuff. Yep. But then, yeah, it extends to that church and family. The family of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So talk a little more about how do you, when thinking about helping in the context of relationships, how do you prioritize those things? If you have a need that's broader, like where we're leaning on organizations like Samaritan's Purse or uh, TBM and and these types of things, what should we be doing prior to that to develop those relationships? Yeah. And why how why are those so crucial? Well, yeah. So relation helping in the context of relationships is crucial for a lot of reasons. Some of this stuff we've already mentioned, you're able to vet better when you're in relationship. Like, and relationship can simply mean I've gotten to know that organization Mm -hmm. or I'm connected to a church that knows that organization. It also helps you know what's needed um, way better. And that comes down even to the person in your own life. You're going to know if that small group member or person you meet on the street, you're going to have different understanding of what is actually needed. And so... I'd be a lot quicker to help the small group member because I've gotten to know them and know, hey, they are, you know, they are stewarding their money really well mm-hmm. and they've just hit a tough spot or yep. this sickness came out of nowhere or whatever. You also know the parts of their need that they may not even be able to see, you know, that, that oh, yeah. as, as yeah. we're communicating we there and, and kind of the back and forth of those conversations can be sharp, mutually beneficial for both parties, not just a, Hey, we need these things. As you go, you might be like, actually, we're seeing this. Have y'all thought about that? You know, and it's a mutually beneficial deal. And so some of the ways that brings together everything we've kind of been talking about is you're going to need to build those relationships before disaster hits. Mm -hmm. Like we were able to jump immediately onto pointing people to the Samaritan's Purse relief sites because we already had a relationship with Samaritan's Purse. Right. We knew that as a go-to. And so, you know, the nice thing is that if, if you are connected to a church, they may already have those relationships mm-hmm. that can help with that. But it's knowing about that well before it happens. And if you don't, if you didn't for Harvey— Use that as the opportunity. Know that next time this happens, I'm going to look to my church and I'm going to jump on Samaritan's Purse page and Texas Baptist Men page or or whatever else it might be for your situation or your your deal. For back to that illustration of Virginia Tech, what I shared with some other college ministers after that was like, hey, you need to know your campus community. And so for us here in Dallas, for instance, we need to, if we don't already know our city well and have some connections to city leaders and they don't already see us as a benefit to the city then it's unlikely that they're going to look to us right. to help right. and even if they're not looking to us it's unlikely we'll know how to help and so there's there's that preparation mode that nobody nobody's zealous about preparation mm-hmm. they're zealous about disaster help yep. but yep. once the disaster comes it's too late to be zealous and effective. Totally. Yeah, I would add something here too, just in terms of training. So our next slide is what are some best practices? And so this is something I would say to that point is get trained because if you want to be able to deploy in the relief phase during the next disaster, get trained. So there's great trainings. Um, I know TBM is having a training pretty soon. There's different organizations that offer training. That's the best way to get to go in that relief phase and do it well. Um, so that's relational and also a best practice. Yeah. What are some other best practices? Run through your list real quick and 
let us know is for the listener who's listening now. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Like there's further equipping. What else? Yeah. So I think a couple I would add is listen to the experts. And so whatever FEMA is saying, whatever organizations are the ground is saying, follow that and listen to that. They're trained in this. They spend months preparing for disasters. So listen to what they have to say. You've talked about it, Nathan. Ask, don't assume. So ask what the needs Mm -hmm. are. Don't assume that you think that you know what they need. Always make sure to ask. And then my last one would be keep it gospel focused. So if we go and we hand out water and we hand out clothing, that's excellent. But if we haven't shared the gospel, we've missed the point. That's good. I feel bad adding this one after the gospel focus, but in your mental list, (laughs) feel free to put this up at two or three. Uh, I've learned, especially being on this job, that a lot of times the best practice is giving financially, if you're able, that giving to experts who know what they're doing is often, especially in the initial stages. Later, they're going to need hands and feet. But initially, if you don't know what to do, but you've got something you can give, giving to a trusted organization frees them up. One of the things we even collected here on that day we collected were gift cards. And they weren't gift cards for Texas Baptist men to pass out to people. They were gift cards so that Texas Baptist men could get whatever was needed. And so it was really just like cash, yeah, and, and yet right. in some ways easier than cash or more more tangible than cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so giving financially as a best practice, I think, really is is right up there for sure. Yeah, love it. We do have a resource slide here for you, so definitely check out. And I think Kirby may send you uh, some of these links. But the disaster relief page at watermark.org, you can check that out. Uh, it, just ways to think through this as, as obviously you've been listening to this webinar, but there's a, a page for you to check out. And then uh, the book, When Helping Hurts, that's kind of the, a classic. Yeah, a modern classic. Like it really yeah. wasn't written that long ago, but it is one, I mean, it's something we rely on a lot, but yeah. it's also ubiquitous among those who just talk about this stuff. Yeah, totally. And by ubiquitous, Benson's all, just showing All you. over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but kind of like Nathan Wagnon's laugh. Yeah. It's ubiquitous. <laughs> Which I do I do hope, Kirby, that you're planning an hour-long podcast <laughs> or webinar of just Nathan's laugh. Just me laughing. That would be that, a Christmas special. I would, I would experience fatigue. That is the and Christmas special. Everybody else definitely would experience fatigue. But then uh, Toxic Charity as well by uh, Bob Lupton that you, you mentioned. Yeah. And then you've we've talked about Samaritan's Purse and Texas Baptist Men. But uh, I always want to end these things by really talking, circling back around of, with one of the things I said earlier. And that is the reason we're f- the most effective, the way that God wants us to respond in, in situations like this is because we are spending the kind of time and have that substantive connection with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there really is something to be said for, hey, go be with Jesus. Like, let him shape and form you into the type of person who's going to respond to these things with wisdom, with clarity, to to be a blessing to people, to connect people, people's material need to the gospel, and to be like Jesus said, you're you're the light of the world. You're a city that's set on a hill. And so um, we, that's not something you can you know, manipulate or conjure up within yourself. That is 100% a byproduct of, of you going and being with Jesus. So take some time this weekend, in the, in the next weeks, as you get involved with this, and just listen. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do and, and respond with faithfulness. Jesus said, hey, in this world, you will have trouble, period. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So thanks for being on this webinar with us today. We really appreciate it. You guys have a great weekend and we hope to see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Equipping Webinar, Connecting Discipleship, Theology, and Apologetics to Everyday Life.